I still remember a dear friend of ours telling the story of Adoniram Judson, and as he told the story of his, the death of his wife and the death of his children, the death of others and all that went on, he would sing a hymn with each one of those amazing moments, and uh, he would just, uh, as he was telling the story, he would, was overcome really telling us uh, with weeping, and I remember there was about 250 of us gathered up in Prescott, Arizona, and and uh, he finally he turned to me as he was overcome with tears, and he says, we should have prayed together for me to have a hard heart to be able to deliver this. And I, I believe as we come to singing that some of those hymns and the, the uh, coming to this element of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we can be overcome, and we should be overcome with the great victory that sounded forth for us here. So I would like to begin with our just having this aspect of this evening to realize it's all real. Jesus Christ has manifested himself to us. We have come to know him, and there's a reality of that. So we read from Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. It's now. It was made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and that's present tense. I think some of your, maybe the authorized version long ago had it, who loved us, past tense, but the best manuscripts have it as present tense, loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And let me say, this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ has been tortured. It has been debated and squeezed out of all the precious juice of it, and people have twisted it and turned it in all kinds of strange things. It was G.K. Chesterton who wrote, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creatures so wild as all of his own commentators. <laughs> and certainly there's been abuse of this book. 
And because of that, I believe many of those that we would speak of as being reformed in their doctrine have really been afraid of the book or neglected the book or uh, we have such a strange thing that seems to have almost surrounded evangelical churches of date setting even though it's been said with such clarity by the Lord himself no one knows that date that when of the coming of Christ we spoke just briefly this morning about how a certain radio station uh, and a certain man predicted a date and people followed that with such uh, uh, carefulness and how false it all was. This book needs to be read with all the light of the Hebrew scriptures from, yes, Genesis all the way to Second Chronicles. Yes, from Genesis all the way to Malachi. It's interesting. There's 404 verses in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. 265 of those verses have some kind of allusion to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. I remember uh, over 50 years ago having the privilege of studying under a man by the doctor, by the name of Dr. Fred Carl Keener. And as far as we could tell, he had memorized in Greek the whole book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we had to know every form through the 404 verses. And as we look at this book, it's not a book that we are to somehow or another think of it as being something of just, you know, serpents, dragons, keys, chains, lambs, lions, numbers, altars, beasts, Babylon plagues, all these strange things as something that doesn't have a background, a culture, a history. And it's the whole of the Old Testament in its beauty and power that God prepared, gave us light to understand these wonderful pictures. There's a unity to the whole of the Bible. It's not one part was given and something else kind of came along. God has designed the whole of his word with purpose, all of it. It's not some imaginary story of future history written before time about bombs and nuclear things and airplanes and strange things that we read back into the book. We take the light of all of Scripture to understand the wonder and beauty and preciousness of these pictures that are given to us. Certainly much of it is what we would speak of as having that of symbolic things as we take the light of the Old Testament. We certainly would not look at the lamb and think of literally, bah, somehow or another lamb. Literally, but all that has to do with that wonderful sacrificial system, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. So when we come to this, it's not some strange thing to identify some number or people in this or the beast with ten horns and seven heads, something very literal and come up with some monstrous thing that is so strange. But we need to see, here is John on the Isle of Patmos, and he says very clearly, I, John, verse 9, your brother and companion in the sufferings and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony 
of Jesus. He was, as we would speak today, a missionary. He was taking the word of God to the people, and he's now under persecution. He is there exiled on that island. And so we have something of this book, I believe, instead of thinking of it as some kind of prehistory of the world, it's a book written for them in that day and for you and for me tonight. It's a book written by a missionary on the mission field, written for missionaries who are very much needing encouragement in a world that's all in chaos and persecution and great struggles. So we come to this book, I believe, in a very different way than most of the interpretations have come to it. It's what I have called a missionary manifesto. It's a declaration of God's great victory. There's no doubt as you read this book that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. He wins the battle. He wins the whole war. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. So when we come to this book, it's really that manifesto that we need in the times in which we live all through the church history. And I would like for you just to note as we look at it in an overall sense that the manifesto is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And secondly, that the manifesto is really God's great plan that is victorious in Jesus Christ. And third, in just a very uh, brief way to look and see that that manifesto calls us to action. And so, if you would think with me of this as being a missionary manifesto and that that manifesto is Jesus Christ himself. Revelation chapter 1, reading verse 12, John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. I hope you realize we're not trying to take something here that, and make some kind of a drawing of something that's literally exactly like that. But all of this is pointing us to the wonder and awe and power and glory of Jesus Christ. There's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. But the word of God is powerful. The manifestation, God's great victory, is Jesus Christ. So when we look at this, there's something powerful that Jesus shines forth in power and glory. The manifesto of God is Solus Christus is Christ alone. He is the one. We read there in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus overcomes. That's what we need to have echoing in our way of thinking. He is the one who is Alpha and Omega. He is the overcoming one. And as we come to this book, we realize that we are told we are not to be afraid of persecution. John was under that. We are not to be afraid of hell itself, of Satan. We are not to be afraid of that which is death itself because we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our present reigning king. As you go, th go through this book, you turn to chapter 2, and what does it have but this aspect of overcoming churches, as you go through chapters 2 and 3, they are churches, as some have tried to say, oh, here is the, the future history of the church, and they go down through all the centuries, and those who were in maybe uh, past centuries, they end with their century, but the reality is these are churches in one sense in all the earth. They're representative of churches everywhere. In fact, maybe we could say over the 50 years of this church, you've been at different parts of places of these different churches. You could almost see yourselves represented with these different churches. And as we look at all the different churches of the earth, the different ones could identify with these different churches where they are. They're representative of all the churches. But all these churches, as you go through them, they are churches that are overcoming in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 there with me. It speaks there, he that has an ear, let him hear. And the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in par the paradise of God. Or again, 2.11, we read those uh, words of great encouragement again. He who has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17, we come down a little ways. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Verse 26, all the way through, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all of them are overcoming. And why do we overcome? Because of Christ is the one who has overcome, and we are joined to him. Jesus is the one who sits on the throne, exalted on his throne. When we turn to chapter 4, there's certainly the beauty of this wonderful picture of the Lord God Almighty is upon his throne. All things made for him, all things for his glory. He is on his throne, present tense. We often remind ourselves that Jesus is not running for office. He's not trying to get your vote or mine. He's already the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Lord, God Almighty. Jesus sits upon his throne. Jesus is now 
king, ruler over the church and over the cosmos. He is Lord. We overcome even in death, just as he overcame. Chapter 3, verse 21 has that ending to that chapter with these words, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame. And so there is a glory there that we have of overcoming because we are joined to him. It's real. We overcome in Christ. He is the one who has overcome. I do believe that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is something we need to have an emphasis, not only in the gospel, which I believe it's a missing note in much of the gospel that's preached in our day, the Lordship of Christ, but we need to have that note resounding in our mind, in our ears. He is Lord now, present tense. He is the glorious one who has overcome. And do we need that message? Certainly isn't this a world of hopelessness? Why do we have the sadness of shootings and mass killings that seem so terribly senseless? Empty people. Why is it that we have all the drugs coming across our border? Terrible other countries, terrible, terrible other countries. And always I remind people, if they'd stop buying it, it would turn off tomorrow. We need to realize we have a nation of people that have money with empty lives, meaninglessness, and they seek an escape from their meaningless lives with drugs. So we have a message that is life from the dead, meaning, purpose in life. And so as we come to this, the Christian manifesto is our plan, our strategy. We handed out something to you beforehand, kind of a, what we have called a strategy for taking the gospel to all the earth. Read through that and discuss it among yourselves. How can we think of covering the earth with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord himself? Now, when we think of covering the earth with the gospel, certainly we need to have an understanding of the reality of this world about us. Revelation chapter 5 begins with these words. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on a throne, the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I believe we need to realize this world has tried a thousand, a million different ways. It just seems to be endless how we can overcome all the problems of the world. No one is able. Who can transform the world from its darkness and its violence? Or oh, if we could have one more law, if we could somehow or another pass something in Congress, if we could just change this, Oh, if we could just have a president that was really a Christian. Oh, if we could just, and we forget, no one is worthy. No one is worthy. No one is able. No one. Whether it be a Karl Marx or all the way to presidents of the United States, when they tell us, 
I'm the answer to everything. They're lying. They don't even know what they're talking about. The problem's way too big for any of them. Interesting. When it tells us that there's none that is able, and I believe we need to realize that it's not technology that's going to be able to do it. It's not something new that's going to change the world. It's the reality we find there in verse 5 when he says, then one of the elders, first we read verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep not the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't think we need to discuss too long with all the light we have from the Old Testament who the lion of the tribe of Judah is. Who is this lamb that we're going to see in a moment it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, weave not. Christ alone is the one who really transforms lives and cultures. He alone has that power to do that. When we read on verse 9, notice what is there. It says, And they sang a new song. This is the song of the manifesto, the missionary manifesto. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest and serve to serve our God. They will reign on earth. Every nation. Every language, every people, every tribe. We've mentioned in these days to what an encouragement we should have to read through, through Gates of Splendor, those five men who gave their lives because they believed that Jesus had a people in that Aka tribe that he had purchased for his glory. Jesus has a people that he has purchased. It says, out of every tribe. In one sense, the gospel is the most universal message in all the world, in all of history. It's for all peoples everywhere. But at the same time, it's particular. Those redeemed out of, purchased out of all the peoples, languages, tribes, and nations of the earth. He has a people he has purchased. We enjoy just realizing that it's a blood-bought people. Yes, the hymn that we enjoy at times, I think you probably sing it here based on the letters of Samuel Rutherford. Maybe I should ask if you sing it. I would think, though, it has that uh, sands of time. The first stanza, the sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I sighed for the fair, sweet morn awakes dark dark hath been the midnight but day spring is at hand and glory glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land be good maybe we could have our brother sing this sometime but uh, the last stanza says the bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face 
I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Samuel Rutherford, I remember it was about five years ago we went to his grave and had a time of, of uh, just remembering how God used this man in such a powerful way there in St. Andrews in Scotland and uh, to think through his, his vision for things. As he lay dying, the recorded words were these, there were nations, kindreds, tongues, and all people of Christ's habitable world that are yet to come to Christ, Jews and Gentiles. And what I've been emphasizing in these messages is that we need to have a, a hope, a vision of what God has yet to do. And so we have a plan to see how that gospel is to go forward in our day. Prayer for the church then Rutherford had that the Jews might be converted and that the gospel might be preached through the remainder of the Gentile nations. That was his prayer. Do we pray in like manner with a burden, oh, that the gospel will go to our Jewish people around us and to the nation of Israel? What an amazing story of the gospel going to them in our day now and to the Gentile world. Yes, have we lost sight, lost hope of the Jews being converted, of the nations being converted, the tribes in all languages? When there was that great hope, I do believe it was a time in the 19th century when there was that missionary work that was amazing. Thousands of couples went from our great institutions to these different lands. Many, most all of them, we never even heard of again. They gave their lives. And there are Christians today in those countries because of their filling up for the sufferings of Christ and taking the gospel there. Our prayers for revival and reformation should continue in our day. The conversion of the Jews, the conversion of the Gentiles, the nations, that we would be praying that every tribe and language and people would come to Christ. The different governments, they do fail, have failed, will fail. The reality is that all the philosophies and philosophers fail. The politicians, they're very good at failing. And they're also good at promising. Don't trust it. Trust the gospel. It is powerful. More powerful than all the money and all the politicians and all the workings of the governments of this world. It is the gospel that is powerful. It changes cultures and people. Jesus Christ will accomplish his, the will of the Father. He is the one who is worthy. They look for all the different ones, and when reality comes, none is worthy. None has the ability to transform people's hearts and lives. The Lord alone can do that. Then finally, just a few thoughts on the missionary manifesto calling us to action. I think we can all more or less quote Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But I ask, do we really believe that for missions today? 
we are to be those who go to the nations and take the initiative to send the gospel to the peoples of the earth, to the tribes, to the needs that are very real all around us. The great commandment that all the nations would have the gospel. Is there someone here that that call comes to to go forth in a specific way to give your life to doing that very thing? Or those here who need to be involved in helping send those different ones, do we have a, a vision for sending the gospel to the nations of the earth? I believe we have open doors today as never before. Satan, we need to remember, has been tied up. Our Lord Jesus Christ came and tied up the strong man so that he would not continue to deceive the nations. The nations before the coming of Christ were in complete blindness. We can count on one hand. Maybe there might be a couple biblical scholars here that might add one or two more for a second hand. But usually when I ask the question, how many Gentiles can you count from the Old Testament? We might get to four or five, and then we kind of stop right there. I've had it happen a couple times that someone found a couple more. But reality is, there ain't many. But now, Christ came, and no longer can the Satan bind, deceive the nations. He's still very active. He still roars. He can tempt. And in that horrible sense of evil, he's present. But no longer can he completely blind the Gentile world. We have the gospel going forth now to the nations. Revelation 5, 9 says there's a purchased people from all those different peoples and nations. Oh, that we would have that wonder and awe that When he is lifted up, he said he will draw all peoples to himself. Or when we read of how that strong man has been tied up, Satan has been tied up by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a great reality to that, and that the very gates of hell cannot prevail. Light will go into the darkness. We have the light And it goes to places of darkness that only, only the light of the gospel can change. We must realize that we have a privilege right now, a wonderful privilege. In one sense, we can think of Satan is on a leash. He can only go so far. We can think of him as being in a certain sense, kind of like in a pit or in a cage. He can only do so much. I remember uh, at times... uh, When I was uh, a boy, we had a a jumping terrier. This dog, you could hold, my uncle who was about 6'1 or so, he would hold up a piece of meat as high as he could, and this dog would just stand there and go, shoot, grab it. He was a jumping terrier, as we called him. I mean, he could just really fly up in the air. And we had to put him on a chain because this dog was so active, you you just couldn't hardly... um, I mean, he was just constantly moving, going, running, jumping, going. And so we had to put him on a chain, and he knew the, he ran that chain right out at the length. And there was like a a path, just like this. 
and we had a banny rooster. I don't know if you know what a banny rooster is, but this rooster would get on a fence and crow, and then it would jump down, and it knew exactly the length, exactly where that dog would run, and that dog every time would run out and jump and go out in the air, and bam, hit the ground. Well, I remember my Uncle John lengthened the chain by two feet. And what a surprise that Banny Rooster had. I mean, it finally jumped up and went back and crowed a little bit. That, but we can be assured there's no Uncle John. Our Lord Jesus Christ has hold him back. He will not be able, we will not be tempted beyond what we were able to bear. The Lord will care for us. He will be with us. He will be the one who is with us. He will not lengthen a chain so that we'll be taken down. There's a great reality that we are those who are in his hand. The providence of God is such he will care for us. Be assured that God will not lengthen the chain and we will not be tumbled down. Satan roars, but he's not able to deceive the nations completely as before. We have the gospel to go to the peoples of this earth. We do reign with Christ now. Ephesians chapter 2, what a glorious chapter. It speaks of our being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, present tense. We have things to rejoice about. No matter what may come into your life. Disfigurement, strokes, heart attacks, COVID, deaths, financial disasters. The Lord is with us through all these things. He walks with us through pain and suffering. And what happens? We are drawn closer to him in those moments of pain and suffering. He has a purpose to draw us close to himself. We can go on with Christ into enemy territory because he has said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is to be our action? Isn't it to invest who we are, what we have in him and in his kingdom? That parable of one being given bags of gold and another given bags of gold and, and one given just one bag of gold. What does he do with it? He digs a hole and puts it down because he knows this master's a, a hard one and he's not going to invest it and use it. And of course, we can be in that sense of not investing what God has given to us for his glory and to use it for his glory. We are to be those who see that he will bless all our endeavors for his glory. If we have those 3D glasses of this world, we will be depressed. We'll be, yes, very despondent and discouraged. But if we see Christ, the manifestation, the manifesto of Jesus Christ, we will be encouraged. We will be realizing we're seated with him in the heavenlies. This gospel we have is powerful. One of the most memorable times 
of seeing the power of the gospel. Some years back, actually, I believe it's 1995, we were in Israel, and Nancy and I went to the conference that was in Haifa there with Baruch Maoz and the church that's there in Israel. And as we gathered in this conference uh, center, we had this time of, uh, of preaching the word of God. And what would happen on Friday evening was with the preaching of the word of God, there was two busloads that would come in from Haifa, north, uh, excuse me, north of Galilee. They would come into Haifa. And these were Palestinians. And as they would come in, they would spread out all over the congregation, be seated, and just all through the congregation. As I was crying to preach, as you preach there, Baruch would be translating into Hebrew from English, and someone else is translating from, from Hebrew into Arabic, and someone else is translating from Arabic into Russian, and all this is going on, and I'm trying to... Uh, teach about husband and wife relationships and things and I'm thinking what's going on I see these people all through the congregation quietly weeping I couldn't figure out why they're weeping because certainly it wasn't you know English Hebrew Arabic Russian and what am I to say next so when I got done I turned to Baruch and I said What's going on? He says, it happens every time. As these people come in, they realize it's the only place in the world, the only place in all of Israel. Watch what they're doing now. They're hugging each other. Palestinians and Jews in Jesus Christ love each other. This gospel we have is more powerful than all the peace agreements, all the workings of governments, all the workings of laws and everything else in all of history. This is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Let us realize what a powerful gift we have. And may we be those who would fill our lives with the hope of this missionary manifesto that Jesus Christ wins. He overcomes. And with him, we overcome. Let us pray.